Nelson. Oh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we talk about the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of the day. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, the fate of Chile's constitution. We're going to talk about King Charles's coronation. We're going to talk about Iran and what they've been up to and sort of the back and forth between them and the United States, as well as some developments in Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we'll begin today talking about five Indian soldiers killed in a skirmish with Kashmiri militants. Now, this is something we haven't talked about in quite a while, as it's been uh, uh, quite a while since it's popped up on the radar. But I remember back in the early days of the podcast, we'd cover uh, news like this. And that's because I was... The news like this made it to me. Now everything's Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Oh, what's this country? Uh, China, China. And it's like, ugh. I gotta say, I know this is a complete, uh, side, a, a complete side mission from what I was just talking about a second ago, but I am so tired of the anti-China propaganda. And it's it's not like, I oh, I, I want China to come over here and do everything for us and, you know, conquer our country and then make and install their social credit scores. I, I, I have no interest in being China. But my goodness, the the propaganda's got to stop. It's got to stop, people. Like uh, I was watching the uh, PBD podcast the other day, and the headline for the, the the thumbnail is "They're out to kill us," and it's like, no, they're not. Stop it. They had, they had, It was uh, the one with Peter Navarro. They they want they want to kill us. It's like stop it, stop it, yeah. <laughs> oh, this the fanaticism, the hysteria surrounding China. Oh, it's it's almost almost it's getting there, but it's not quite. It's almost as bad as the hysteria about Ukraine and all the people who won't shut up about Ukraine. It's tiring mentally, especially when I have to sift through it for my news. But I still enjoy the podcast, nonetheless. I do recommend it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But anyway, uh, that's probably just that's probably just going to be a problem. I have to wait for the collapse of the empire, and then people will have issues more pressing at home than what China is doing in the South China Sea. And then I'll finally be able to rest in peace. Not not die. I'm not going to die. Hopefully, I don't. But I'll be I'll be able to sit down in my nice comfortable bed and rest easy, knowing that my country isn't gonna be dragged off to war by some idiot who thinks that they're gonna get us into the right war this time. Ugh. But anyway, we have Ukraine re- reportedly now holding just five percent of Bakhmut, just five percent, and they were down to about. What what was it? Twenty percent the last time I brought up the number, or was it ten? Uh, whatever the number was, it keeps shrinking. I mean, they uh, there was a time when they held one hundred percent of the city, and now they don't. And 
well, this confirms that the Russians aren't going for the encirclement. We we had some a little bit of speculation on whether or not they'd complete the, the circle or if they would just squeeze Ukraine out from attacking from all sides. And they've opted for the second option, as I sort of guesstimated that they would. Again, I have refrained from making short-term predictions about Russia's military and what they're going to do. I just watch and I report. That's that's the safe option. That's at, the, at this point, that's the responsible option for me as someone who even bothers to try to cover the topic accurately because I could just sit here and repeat what the, the what the White House and the Pentagon are saying, which is, oh, yeah, 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 Russia's, Russia's lost. What, <laughs> what did this guy say? Oh, my goodness. I, I can't wait. We're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine later on, but that, that guy said they lost 100,000 men since December. We'll get into who that guy was when we get but my goodness, my golly, it's been a wild ride. And, you know, I could have made my job so much easier by just repeating the talking points of the the lovely, trustworthy, never lying media. But I decided to take the hard route. <laughs> I say the hard route as if I'm doing something monumental. I just found good sources. But even that was a struggle. But, yeah, uh, it's it's been quite a quite a rough ride for those ukrainians they're now down to five percent in bakhmut the number keeps dropping and the russians are using more weapons i mean last week we talked about them using multiple rocket launch systems that were armed with thermobaric missiles which effectively makes them super heavy artillery pieces that that's that's what i just take to calling them like the specific is that they're multi-rocket launch systems with thermobaric rounds i call them the super heavy artillery and i think that it's i do not think i'm inaccurate to say that i mean what else would you call what else would you call a weapon that can fling a bomb at you that can incinerate everything around you to the point of non-existence what else would you call that i call that heavy artillery my god but the russians are bringing heavy artillery in they're using thermobaric missiles in heavily forested areas like compare that to the way they went into the war and i think we can start to get a sense of what's going to happen to ukraine the longer this war goes on because the russians went in they they barely fired shots you saw you saw glimpses of the russian air force here and there and the russians they were really just driving in and with minimal resistance and they were happy to keep it that way then it was, oh, then it was as they uh, settled into the south and they pulled their troops out from the north, which was marketed as a grand Ukrainian counteroffensive. And, you know, in a way it was. The Russians had managed an organized retreat from those areas. They were very, very overstretched, mind you. They were still having issues manning the front even as late as December. Uh, they finally, finally consolidated the line. Uh, I believe just after they withdrew from Kherson City, and this is after the annexations. But yeah, it took them a, a really long time to consolidate the line, primarily because they weren't trying to really fight the war. They they didn't go in uh, Desert Storm style. I say it all the time. They could have come in, they could have dropped every bomb in their arsenal, and there was nothing the Ukrainians could have done to stop them. There was nothing Ukrainians could have done to stop them. Now, in the beginning, I thought that the Russians had effectively neutralized Ukraine's air defense. But now that I'm thinking back on it, 
and with uh you know the fact that we're talking about the russian air force returning to action after ukraine ran out of uh air defense missiles well that forces me to revise that statement uh now that i'm thinking about it because if it took this long for the russian air force to start showing up again because the ukrainian air defenses uh, they they had to run out of ammunition for the Russian Air Force to feel safe enough to do this. That means that the Ukrainian air, air defense systems were not neutralized in the beginning of the war like I thought. They must have suffered a heavy hit, but they were still kicking and operational. So uh, uh, a late game, a very late game. Uh, how, how do I say? Very late uh, retraction. There we go. There's the word I'm looking for, but a necessary one. Cause that's what I started the war believing. And I reported that to you guys, but here we are. They have 5% of Bakhmut and the Russians are using heavy artillery, super heavy artillery compared, compared what they were doing before to they have they are deploying super heavy artillery their their air force is coming in they've been doing a strategic missile bombing operation since october and they've done two mobilizations one of which we know is going to be a permanent addition uh quote unquote permanent uh permanent is a very long time but you know the new standing army the half a million troops mobilized in december we know that at the very least, Russia's army is going to expand by that much. Now, whether or not the 300, well, really 400,000 that they mobilized in October stick around as well, I'm not entirely sure if that's what's going to happen. I think that they will go home, but the remilitarization, that, that second mobilization in December, I think that they're sticking around, which means Russia's military is going to have a standing force of 1.2 million people. So there's that. And lots and lots of experienced reservists once this war is over. <clears throat> but it's incredible to see how far things have come and how uh, bleak the picture increasing looks for Ukraine. Because they were fighting for their life when the Russians were holding back. And the Russians are increasingly, increasingly holding less and less back. So I'm... I think... I think... A lot of people are going to have a lot of respect that they need to be putting back on Russia's name. And I believe a lot of people will be doing that sometime this summer. That's my personal guesstimation. That's my personal guesstimation. But speaking of Ukraine, the Battle of Bakhmut, Russia and the Wagner Group have intensified their operations and their combat operations in and around Bakhmut in what appears to be an attempt to finally bring the longest battle of the war to a close. I think that that's what they're trying to do. Now, whether they're doing this because they need Bakhmut captured before they begin their own offensive, or if they want to have Bakhmut, you know, wrapped up by the time the Ukrainian offensive begins, I'm not entirely sure. We'll, of course, we'll find out sometime after the war. My guess is that they want to be as prepared as possible for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. They want they want to use Bakhmut for their for their defense instead of being caught by this offensive when they're still fighting in this city instead of having a a consolidated line. So that's my guess. But they appear to be now rushing to finish the battle, uh, if, if rushing is the right word. Ah, rushing. But 
yeah, they, they've put a little bit more urgency in this, which I assume, I assume this is my assumption, which I assume means that they feel Ukraine's counteroffensive is literally right around the corner, uh, maybe a week or so, maybe three weeks, given how slow things go in Bakhmut. But Russia's usually been one to take their time, especially with the Battle of Bakhmut. They, so for them to seemingly be uh, in more aggressive than usual in their attacks and the fighting around Bakhmut, like the, uh, if you don't count endless bombardment of artillery, aggressive, but I mean like sending in the men and these and storming the blo- the city blocks to take land. They've been much more aggressive with that lately, which sends a signal to me that says, hmm, what are they doing this for? When they've been more than happy to take their time for all these months, it's, it's depending on where you chart the beginning of this battle, it's almost been a year that they've just been grinding it out at Bakhmut. And they've been perfectly content with grinding it out. So why are they rushing now? In my mind, that says the Ukraine's counteroffensive is around the corner. And they need to have this battle wrapped up and all the forces that are committed to it. They need to have those that the battle needs to be wrapped up and those forces need to be redeployed to their designated positions pronto. Because while I think Ukraine's counteroffensive is going to fail, that doesn't mean Russia isn't going to be forced to pull back. Russia's not omnipotent. If they get caught off guard by this offensive, they can suffer losses, which the Russians feel are unnecessary. This is not the Soviet Union. They truly do value their manpower. It's more like Imperial Russia. Think of think of Imperial Russia during like the Napoleonic Wars or something like that, where they didn't throw men at the problem, although they had plenty of men to throw. They were much more conservative with their forces. That's the Russia I see today. They don't want to take unnecessary losses. So if they can wrap up, so if they have to rush to wrap up Bakhmut so they can properly hold the line against this offensive, then they're going to do it. And since they have just about 95 or so percent of the city, they would better time than now to rush the conclusion of this fight. And the Ukrainians have been bled white. They've allowed themselves to be bled white in Bakhmut. And the consequences of that, I can only imagine, and we will observe those consequences as time goes on, but it's really going to be one of those long-term things. It's going to be one of those long-term things. Because, you know, I'll I'll get more... (laughs) I've been going all in on Ukraine. But yeah, when you look at the demographics, because I recently delved back into the demographics of things, and you remember that Europe as a whole is below replacement rate and its fertility... And their population is set to decline because they haven't been having kids like that. Well, losses like that are quite literally irreplaceable. Quite literally. And which it begs the question, is there going to be a Ukrainian nation after this? I mean, the Ukrainians that left, are they going to come back? A lot of them say they're just not going to. They're happy where they are now. The Ukrainians living in Russia will. Because Ukraine's going to become a part of Russia, and they'll they'll get to return home. So what does that leave? It leaves what about a third of Ukraine's pre-war populace? What uh, fifteen or so million people who now get added to the Russian population figures, which would put Russia at around one hundred and sixty million if they 
complete the integration with Belarus. That's 170 million. That's their World War One numbers. Though the Russia might be the only country in Europe to grow its population in the coming decades. Although, granted, they'll still have that still have that issue with demographics. But when you win a war, usually what happens is you get a baby boom. Russia's recovery might actually be accelerated by victory in this war. This is very, a very consequential war for them. And that would change the equation because a lot of people write Russia off as a declining power. Same with China. What happens if they have a baby boom? What happens if China wins the war over Taiwan and they have a baby boom? What happens then? The, the calculation, the estimates, the they're off. They immediately become rendered useless by people having kids. And that's the human factor that's never taken into account here. That things can change and they can change incredibly quickly. Because you have conservatives in America going, they, they fear monger about China. They fear monger a little less about Russia. And then they, they sort of sit back and take solace and, oh, well, their their populations are declining. They'll fade away. We just have to outlast them, you know. Well, and that's a typical fearmonger's response to a problem that wasn't nearly as big as they would like for us to believe. But what happens when the Chinese and the Russians start having kids? Oops. Now they're not going to fade away. And what are you going to do then? You're going to go you're going to go fight both of them at the same time again? That's a great idea. I have different ideas on the, what the direction of America could be and what I believe they should be. As a matter of fact, I think I just might have my idea for the third anniversary episode. But that I will save for a later day. But we're, we're going to move on from Ukraine. I still have other news to get to you. Uh, where are we? Well, I guess I have to finish up because I still have these notes written down. Because with the, with the closing of Bakhmut, the longest battle of the war, I think that this is going to open up a new phase of the war. I believe this is going to be the return to a war of movement. That's what I see coming. Both with Ukraine's counteroffensive, there will be some slight adjustments on the board. Maybe the Ukrainians get a breakthrough here or there, and the Russians do have to fall back. But then, Ukraine's going to use up everything they have. Like, we, we know what their situation is. It's worse than even I painted for them. And I've been trying my darndest to give them reason... I've been trying my darndest to give them the benefit of the doubt within reason. Like, not, oh, they're dominating the Russians and slaughtering them by the millions and only losing a, a handful of men in the process if we just give them a few more mil No, that's completely unreasonable. But if I'm given a range of five to 8,000, oh, well, I'm going to assume they have six or 7,000, you know? They have this many men. Okay, well, uh, well let's assume the best for them. Let's assume they have X number of men. They oh they have anywhere from five to eleven thousand artillery shells a day. Okay, well let's assume they they have like eight thousand. You know I I've been doing my best. <laughs> I've been doing my best. Don't say I didn't give the Ukrainians anything. I have assumed the best for them, and I've always had to revise to the worst case. Oh they they've lost. I I thought they lost uh, like. 30, 40,000. Then I had to revise up to 160,000. I thought that they had, I thought that they weren't, I didn't know if they were losing eight to one in the artillery duel. I didn't know if they were losing eight to one men in the casualties. I know now I held off and then I, I had to revise. So 
the fact that every time I have to revise my information about Ukraine, it's revising it in a way that doesn't help Ukraine. Because I'm just presented with facts that make what I was assuming look like a best case scenario for them. I have no reason to believe that this is going to be any different. This offensive is going to bleed everything that they have left. It's going to take away everything they have left. I mean, I thought that they still had anywhere from... I, I didn't know what their stockpiles of shells were. I assumed they had a few tens of thousands. Because you remember before, I was saying, okay, they're they're... The Duran is saying they're down to 3,000 shells a day. You know, maybe they are. I'm going to assume that they're at five because I'm looking at five to 8,000. That's not too far off, too far off. You know, maybe they still can fire 8,000 a day, but they're just conserving them so they can prepare for this offensive. Then we get the, the Pentagon leaks and they're down to 1,000 a day. And they have, at any given point in time, 10,000 artillery shells. Not even. I'm like, wow. If they tried to fire, if they tried to do what I said that they probably had the ability to do, they would have run out of artillery in a day. There's no way. How are they going to do this offensive? So when they do this offensive and lose, there's nothing left for Ukraine. There's nothing left. And then after that comes the backbreaker offensive from Russia. And I think that's when the whole thing starts to unravel. That's... That's when the war of movement comes back. And once the war of movement comes back, Ukraine's static warfare doesn't work anymore. It, it won't work. They don't have the reserves. They don't have the operational reserves. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the men. And you need those things if you're going to have flexible defenses. You're going to need those things if you want defense in depth, where you have line of trench after line of trench after line of trench. They don't have those anymore. They've exhausted their resources. So once the war of movement begins, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. And then everyone will find out just how, quote-unquote, bad at logistics the Russians really are. Like I said, a lot of respect is going to be put back on Russia's name this summer. But moving away from the Ukraine war, we have Russia and Kyrgyzstan agreeing to improve the Kyrgyzstani military, as well as improve the Russian military base in the country. Turkey has uh, Turkey is closing in on its first round of presidential elections, uh, this Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, the 14th, uh, presidential and parliamentary elections with Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the incumbent president, going up against Kemal Kilic Daroglu. Uh, I have, it took me a minute to really pronounce that uh, when I first read it because it was in Turkish and I don't speak not a lick of Turkish. Turkish. Uh, but yeah, we'll see what happens there. And then we'll sort of analyze the result of that election. Although we'll have to wait a little bit. I'll probably be able to report on the first round of the elections, but it's the second round that I have to wait for before we do any real analysis of this. But uh, yeah, that's going to be happening this week, uh, literally right before I do it's, uh, next week's episode. And amidst an ongoing process to amend Chile's constitution, the Republican Party, that's Chile's party, not ours, the Republican Party has won 35% of the vote in these elections to decide the committee in a, uh, the committee to the uh, the Constitution, uh, in addition to the 21% uh, that the other conservative parties gained, while the previous, well, technically still the governing coalition, musters around 29%. 
out of the and out of the 50 seats on this committee this committee which is effectively their uh, a constitutional convention that they have right now and, and in that convention you have 50 seats and you vote on them so out of the 50 seats the republican party in chile has 22 the remaining co collection of conservatives have gained 11 seats and the country's left-wing governing coalition has come home with around 11 seats with another six seats for other left-wing parties uh yeah probably probably talk just a little bit more about that later on but uh the, we're going a little you know uh I'll, I'll get a grip of my English in some point in the time. But I'll end the rapid-fire news but with Syria finally returning to the Arab League, which just might mark an official end to the, civil war, uh, to the Syrian civil war. That's what the Duran is saying. And it just might be true. It just might be true. And I remember... And the, this happening has really sort of reminded me of what the UAE was saying. It's time for Syria to return to its Arab brothers, to return to the family. And that those words are just sort of echoing in my mind as I read this, that they're rejoining the Arab League, which is something that they need the support of Saudi Arabia to do. This might just mark the end of that war. So then the question is, what the hell are our troops doing there? Questions, questions, and more questions. But that's the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of today's episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And, uh, I guess we'll sort of uh, kind of finish up with Chile. Yeah, we'll finish up with Chile. There was a number of things I want to get into that I sort of left out. Uh, we have brought up that there were 50 seats in this committee, This uh, this sort of constitutional convention type committee that the Chileans are having for their, well, what essentially amounts to a constitutional convention. Uh, I don't, they don't have a, like a official name for it. It's more of a, oh, they're getting together to amend the constitution type thing. So it's sort of hard for me to keep saying that, oh, they had this election for the, to get together for, to the, to amend the constitution. Oh, they're having this election to get together to amend the constitution. So I'll, I'll just refer to it as their constitutional convention even though that's not the official name. It sort of makes it easier for me to refer to it in a single sense. But yeah, the conservatives are strongly and firmly in charge of this process. They've, courtesy of that special election, have over, over a supermajority. They have more than a supermajority because with 100, you would need like 60 or 66 for a supermajority, depending on what you were dealing with. I know in America... Uh, uh, it's anywhere from 60 to 66 votes to have a supermajority. But in this case scenario, in relative terms, they have more than 66 because if you cut 100 down to half, which is 50, well, the 66 gets cut down in half as well, and you only need 33 to have a supermajority, so a two-thirds majority. And they have, between all the conservatives combined, they have 37 uh, wait, is it 37? So the Republicans have 22, and the other conservatives have 11. No, okay, so it's literally 33 seats. Okay, okay, okay. I'm getting my numbers together. 
they had a good percentage of the vote, but they have 33 seats, and that's what matters. They have a supermajority of seats, which means that if they work together, it's veto-proof. It's veto-proof, and they can do whatever they want, irrespective of what the left-wing parties have to say, which is a little ironic, considering it was the left-wing parties who wanted to do this amendment to their constitution. And now they have to sit and watch while their political opposition has the ability to do whatever they want, assuming that the the conservatives stay together and are able to hash out their differences, because they are different parties. It's not just one big Republican or conservative party. There are a number of parties, so they will have their differences. And if they're able to hash it out, and come to agreements, they can roll through whatever they want. They have the majority, a veto-proof majority. But if they can't, well, that opens the door for the governing coalition, which is primarily left-wing, to sort of step in and work with any any one, any one rogue vote from the conservatives can derail the process, which gives every single one of the conservatives immense power. And we'll see if they sort of pull a pull a MAGA Republican type thing where they uh, hold up the vote in exchange for concessions, which would be smart. But it's also a, a kind of risky maneuver because you don't know when one other guy is going to sort of defect or heck, maybe even one of the left wing representatives might defect to the right. And then they don't need your vote anymore because now they have 34 people. If they just make X number of concessions to this one guy, and then he's perfectly fine with the conservatives doing what they want as long as he gets the hand number of policies written into the Constitution. So, we will see. This is a very interesting situation going on in Chile, and we will see what the conservatives do. They hold together and get their policy pushed and written into the the new constitution of Chile, or if something uh, weird happens. We will see. But that's uh, enough about Chile. Now we're going to talk about, just a little bit about, King Charles's coronation. Uh, last week, uh, just a few days ago, in fact, I'm sure that sh- a good number of you might have. I know I missed it. <laughs> I, I, I knew it was going to be happening in May, but I was completely unaware that it was going to happen on the day that it happened. So it sort of passed me by. But King Charles last week, uh, King that is Charles III specifically, he was officially coronated as the King of England and the King of the United Kingdom. And his wife, Camilla, Camilla Rosemary Shand, has become its new queen. Uh, okay, well, technically they already had these positions since last September when Queen Elizabeth died, but uh, <clears throat> now it's official. And while the ceremony did demonstrate, uh, I saw some pictures of it, I saw a few videos of the procession, the ceremony was pretty glitz and pretty glam. And it definitely shows that the UK is fully capable of remembering and upholding its traditions as well as its culture. Uh, which is something that modern politics, both in Europe and America, has sought to denigrate, not just UK culture specifically, but the culture of every country in Europe and America. Uh, Europe and America, as if America is multiple countries. 
the, the modern Western left seeks to denigrate the culture and history of the country that they embed themselves into. Uh, strange, considering that you choose to live there, and then you're going to hate on your history. Yeah. It's a strange thing, a strange world those left voids lived in. Uh, I don't subscribe to that at all. But, um, yeah, it's it was definitely a bit jarring to go from white white supremacy this and white supremacy that and all these woke policies about how we're going to do this about carbon emissions and uh it was definitely definitely a very odd shift you know, to say take a step back to uh some might say a time when things made sense i uh, know i just might although you know minus america of course he <laughs> You you can have your king, so long as I have my country, and that's how I feel. But yeah, it was it was a very jarring transition, and it did demonstrate again that they can they can uphold their culture when they want to. They don't we the slip and slide into cultural degeneration and rot isn't something that has to happen. It's certainly not an inevitability. The police were there doing their job. They weren't just watching the protesters do whatever they wanted. For five years, no, they, you know, kept the peace, and you had a a fairly wholesome moment. I'll just say that much. And this is again coming from someone who doesn't really care too much about the crown. No, we seceded from those people, but it does remind me that the fact that we're even having this change of mm, the title, really, the the official coronation of a new king and a new queen has sort of reminded me in the back of my mind that the UK has been incredibly politically unstable over the last year. I mean, they've had, they've had three prime ministers in the span of like three months. They had Boris, then they had Liz Truss, and then they had Rishi Sunak. Now, we're still with Rishi Sunak, but then right after that sort of musical chairs of prime ministers that they had over the course of the summer, then the Queen dies. It's been a wild ride that they've had. So the question in my mind, now looking at King Charles III, who himself is like 75 years old and the queen was 94. So how much time is he going to have in the saddle before we need another coronation? Because he is very much up there in age. Like, is something going to happen to him? Because... Sure, we can expect people of this level of wealth and affluence to live pretty long lives, but that's not necessarily a guarantee. People who are wealthy and are healthy don't always live into their 80s, 90s, and 100 years old. The 70s is pushing it. Making it to the 80s is pushing it. Like, it's it's a concern. It's a concern that I know has to be just lingering in the backs of everyone's minds who are living, you know, in the UK or in, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who still recognize the crown as their head of state. But when your head of state comes in, you're that old. It's one thing to have a president who's 75, 80 years old. They're going to be gone in four to eight years anyway. But when your monarch 
who's supposed to be there for uh, their entire life is going to be that old. It's well, okay, that's a five to 10 year reign before we have to get to the next guy. So what will his tenure look like now that he is officially the king? What will it look like? Because the crowning of a monarch, from my uh, personal study of history, the crowning of a monarch usually goes one of two ways. Either they come in and they preside over the coming storm and the storm itself, and it's just an absolute chaos and turbulent time. Either they come in and that's what they deal with, or they come in and they preside over the calm that comes after the storm. And you have this this reign of peace and prosperity or, you know, a reign of stagnation, but it's not rocking the boat. It's not, it's not bad, but it's not good. You know, it usually goes one of two ways. Either you get chaos and upheaval or you get stability. Sometimes that stability brings prosperity. And sometimes the stability just gives you exactly that stability. What will his reign bring? We will have to see. Technically, he's had nearly a year as the king already, but now that he is officially king, it'll be interesting to see where this goes, and we'll be interested. It'll be interesting to see what happens with those uh, other royals, the ones who got basically got excommunicated because they uh, kept calling everyone in the royal family racist. We'll, we'll see what becomes of this family, and if the lineage will continue. And that's certainly something. Uh, we we will we'll probably end up coming back to this in the not too distant future but that is king charles now we'll get into what happened with iran because iran has seized two oil tankers in the gulf that were flagged by panama the country panama the tanker was directed uh, one of them was flagged by panama and i forget what the other one well, actually, it just didn't tell me. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say that they were both flagged by Panama, but know that it was two oil tankers. One of them was flagged by Panama and they were redirected towards Bandar Abbas, which is an Iranian coastal city. The U.S. Navy says that Iran's actions are contrary to international law and disruptive to regional security and stability. Huh. And you know, you know, that's just grand. <clears throat> that's just absolutely grand coming from us. But you have the the fifth fleet has also said, not just the Navy, but the fifth fleet specifically, has said, quote, Iran's continued harassment of vessels and interference with navigational rights in regional waters are unwarranted, irresponsible, and present a threat. To maritime security and the global economy, end quote. To which my response is, yeah, yeah. They, so when they seize tankers, it's unwarranted and irresponsible, right? But then when we seize tankers, because let's not forget that this has been a, a back and forth game going on for years, though, quite frankly, but we've been covering it uh, over the last two years. Like, it, it wasn't that long ago when uh, Lebanon had its economic crisis. The Iranians were sending oil by sea 
And it was the Israelis blowing up oil tenders. And it's like, yeah. So it's okay when the United States and Israel do it. But when Iran seizes a tanker, they don't even blow it up. They When the Iran seizes a tanker, it's... Uh, it's... Freedom of it's it's terrorism. It's terrorism. And when but when we seize the tankers, when we destroy them, when we take the oil, it's freedom of the seas and counterterrorism. That is blatant hypocrisy. And we shouldn't be surprised when people in the region don't take us seriously. I wouldn't take us seriously. In fact, I don't. <laughs> because why would you? If someone's just gonna lie to your face, why would you take them seriously? But this is ongoing. This isn't just Iran. This is Iran and us and Israel. We are all playing this game. Now, sometimes it, it escalates. And I remember there was one time the Iranians took a South Korean oil tanker that was coming from Saudi Arabia. And the South Koreans were dispatching a destroyer to go get it back. And that would, that would have been a very interesting scenario had the destroyer made its way over to the Persian Gulf. It might have been an embarrassment for the South Koreans. If the they, Iranians chose to hold on to it and then they got into a firefight and then their destroyer gets effectively effectively seized by pirates on speedboats, that would have been a humiliation. Or the destroyer shows up and the Iranians hand over the, the oil tanker. And then that's a humiliation for Iran. Luckily, Qatar, Qatar stepped in and mediated and they both disengaged. Unfortunately, Qatar is not able to get the United States to do anything because the United States doesn't want disengagement at the current moment in time. America wants conflict and then wants to fearmonger about the conflicts that we get ourselves into because look at how evil that country is. Look at how evil Iran and China and Russia are. Look at what they're doing. Don't look at what we're doing. You know, look look only at what they're doing. But yeah, it's it's... Uh, it's just an ongoing, an ongoing, needless, senseless crisis where they take an oil tanker and we take an oil tanker of theirs. Then the, uh, the Israelis blow something up. It's, it's a game. At this point, it, it's a game. But the game, unfortunately, for the Israeli-American coalition, the game is changing. Because while we're focusing on oil tankers that the Iranians are seizing in the Persian Gulf, and how we're going to respond by seizing tankers of theirs, while we're doing all that, the entire region has changed. I, I just said a moment ago, back during the Rapid Fire News segment, that Syria has rejoined the Arab League. They have rejoined they're Arab brothers. Iran and Arabia have signed a deal to reopen their embassies. Arabia has allowed Iran to rejoin the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. The Arabia has allowed Iranian diplomats to set foot on Arabian soil to take their seat in the OIC. That's the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Turkey is, is rearranging its relationship with Assad. Iran and Russia were already backing Assad. The UAE 
radical ter- they're the ones talking about Syria rejoining the Arab brothers. Radical changes in the in the region have completely altered the dynamics. Arabia and Iran are no longer fighting, and that deal was brokered by the Chinese. So while we're over here obsessing about oil tankers, the facts on the ground are changing. We're not we're not dealing with coal anymore. That's iron. It's it, it's we're not dealing with stone anymore. It's 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 metal. Oh no! Look, it's water. Oh, and now it's it's the sand of the desert. The ground has literally changed. Well, not literally. Okay, I'm, I'm being a little hyperbolic. But what we're focusing on all the wrong things. And and that's not me saying we need to stop what's happening. I but we certainly have to adjust to it. We can't keep doing what we're doing. It's just, uh, it's a bit, a bit disheartening to see how we'll hyper-focus on Iran taking oil tankers. And then, and then we'd have nothing to say about these massive changes going on around us. We're we're not, we're not going to readjust. We're not going to, we're not going to move around a little. We're not going to move the pieces on the board. We're we're not going to pull our troops out of Syria so they don't get effectively encircled by a coalition of literally everybody in the region. No, we're gonna we're gonna hold these fake phony <laughs> war games over a U.S. China war, and we're gonna effectively play Dungeons and Dragons while doing so. It's, it's <laughs> oh man, this is. Uh, the decline of this empire is necessary, and it will be something to behold on the other side of it. But man, is the process so slow and painful and hurtful. <laughs> and uh, if I'm being honest with you, annoying. So annoying. Ah. But I, I'll go through it all. So that I can continue to be a decently reliable source of news. Well, that's that's a uh, that's Iran. My goodness, it's it's something. It's certainly something. My mind is blanking on me a lot today. My vocabulary is still with me as long as I can rally it and marshal it to my cause. But I imagine that that'll only last for not much longer either. But, 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 we have more than Iran and Chile and King Charles to talk about. We have something else as well. We have a little bit about Ukraine. And this, I guess this, this is the fun part here. This fun part. Usually, usually uh, the Ukraine segment, while interesting, is the, oh, brother, we're talking about Ukraine again. That, that's, that's usually how it is. But today, we have... White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. <laughs> this is what I was talking about earlier on in the episode. This guy, John Kirby, estimated that Russia has taken over 100,000 casualties since December alone. December alone, they've taken 100,000 casualties, including around 20,000 deaths. It's an insane number that he has put up there. 
certainly way higher than any estimate I had. I'm still of the opinion that the Russians are somewhere between 30 and 50,000 casualties. And what number of deaths that is? Oh, well, what? That was the Medusa, that Medusa article saying that they had about, what, 14,000? Barely? So that was, what, back in February, January? It's May now. So we'll we'll just assume, and this is, we'll just assume it went up by 2,000. 16, as a matter of fact, we'll go 3,000, 17,000 Russian dead. So you know what? You know what? He might not be wrong about the death count. He, he's not too far off. If we're talking about the entire war, that is. No. <laughs> he was immediately uh, not not quite directly fact-checked, but indirectly fact-checked uh, by Sean Savet, the deputy spokesperson of the National Security Council, because uh, he said, and this is also something that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said back in November. Uh, they were, where they gave these same numbers roughly, but they were referring to the entirety of the war. But here's Kirby talking about, yeah, they basically doubled their losses in, since December. He didn't say it like that. I think he was just mistaken. But he certainly didn't look mistaken. And I, part of me believes that he believes what he said. I would not be surprised. When you when you see what the pro-Ukraine side is willing willing to believe about Russia, it's crazy. I, I can't I can't even underestimate their underestimation of Russia. That would be a journalistic malpractice on my end, and I'm not even quite the journalist. I I just talk shit geopolitically, but even I can't go off that deep end. It just wouldn't be news, but. I have to say it because this number and I I was debating whether or not I was even going to put this in the episode because like, okay, he messed up big whoop. The numbers aren't that far off. Right. Because we were we already knew about the number of deaths back in February and January. So to say that they had X number of deaths, 20,000, that's not too far off of a number. And to say that that's deaths and then you have about 100,000 casualties, that's a reasonable estimation. It's probably still a, a high-end estimation, closer to the higher end of the spectrum of what Russia has probably legitimately lost in terms of casualties, not deaths. Uh, although the death figure is probably still pretty close to accurate. It's, it's not a bad set of numbers to be working with. It's probably just on the upper end. Like, again, even if when we assumed an additional 3,000 on top of that 14,000, uh, this 20,000 number that the White House and the Pentagon are working with is still 3,000 men higher than that. So it's, it's, on the, it's on the higher end. But other than that, it's not an impossible number. It's certainly not an unrealistic number, even the 100,000 casualties. It's very possible the Russians have had a hundred thousand people get wounded in the war because that's what casualties are if twenty thousand of them are dead and that means eighty thousand people got wounded and they're still alive that's perfectly reasonable it's again high end but it's reasonable but if it is true we have to take into account what that means for the ukrainian side 
to the Ukrainians, and this is something that I put off on uh, going along with until it was, you know, really, really uh, extensive that it was the case, which is that the Russians had the Ukrainians beat eight to one in artillery most of the time. And that that almost immediately led to an eight to one casualty ratio in Russia's favor. So if the Russians are at around 100,000 casualties, and they are have a 8 to 1 casualty ratio in their favor, that would suggest that nearly a million Ukrainians have been wounded by this war. And about, about, about 160,000 dead, if we're sticking to the 8 to 1 ratio. Now, that is also a high-end figure, in my opinion. That's also a high-end. But, you know, uh, not the deaths. I think the deaths is actually uh, undercutting the amount. I think the, the, the lethality rate of the war is a bit higher for the Ukrainian side than it is for the Russians. So while I think 800,000 casualties is a bit much, I think it'd be more closer to half a million casualties with 200,000 plus being deaths. I think that's the more accurate number because remember the by the admission of Ursula von der Leyen of General Zeluzhny and cooperated by Zelensky they had lost over 100,000 people back in November and then we got that interview in December where he's like yeah my forces down to 150,000 men it's like, okay, well, you had 350,000 when the war started. So if you're down to around 200,000, 190,000 men, that means you lost 160,000. Where did they go? <laughs> so if you were at 100,000 deaths, because that's that's what it was, 100,000 deaths in the by the end of November of 2022, and you had... People like Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor saying that the number was 200,000 back in January of this year, which I th I think that was a stretch. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Now, it could be that I have to <laughs> revise my estimates again, uh, not in Ukraine's favor, because here I am again, giving the Ukrainians uh, the benefit of the doubt, even though I'm well aware that the chance that I end up having to revise the statement against them in the future is likely, but it just doesn't seem likely to me that they go from 100,000 dead in November to 200,000 dead in January when the war began in February of last year. It took the, almost a whole year for them to get to 100,000 dead. I don't think you go up by a hun another 100,000. You don't just tick up in two months' time. I think that's a bit absurd. So I think right around now would be an appropriate time to say that they're at 200,000, 200,000 plus dead, but to say that they, but if I think that it would be wrong to stick to the eight to one casualty figure and say that Russia has 100,000 losses and Ukraine has 800,000 losses, I think that is also a stretch. I think it'd be more reasonable. Here I am giving them the benefit of the doubt again. I think it's more reasonable. So they've had around half a million casualties, and of that, 200,000, 200,000 plus are dead. I think that's reasonable. But 
I might, <laughs> I might have to re retract that statement in the not too distant future as well, as the war ha has a lot of surprises. I mean, who was expecting that we were suddenly going to get a legitimate info on the real numbers on the war from a, a Pentagon leak, which is now currently being used to crack down on American citizens as the government is trying to shift the focus away from Ukraine as much as humanly possible, although I feel that this is just going to ultimately end up backfiring as uh, people forget about Ukraine for the moment, and then when Ukraine loses, it's going all that attention is going to come right back, and then suddenly it's why didn't you cover this why didn't why didn't you do this why didn't you say that what why what do you have to say about this and it's going to come back to get them uh, i don't even know why they bother trying the public might have a, a very short memory but it's not that short it's not that short uh, not on really big issues like this one not after you gave 130 billion dollars to this foreign entity not after you beat everyone over the head about how important it was that we stand up to Russia and stand with Ukraine. No, no, no. You don't. You don't get to walk away from that one uh, as if nothing happened. No, you made that bet, and now you're going to sit in it. And that's also a lesson that the Ukrainians are going to learn as well. When you make the bet, and then you have to sit in it. And the reason I say that, you know, as a sort of convenient although unplanned segue into what I wanted to talk about as well is Ukraine as a terrorist state. Now, on first glance, that might sound quite the extreme statement to make, and it, it was originally going to be Ukraine as a nuclear terrorist state, which sounds even more extreme than what I just said. But if you have been following me on this podcast for at least the beginning of the Ukraine war, you'll probably have an idea of what I've ta I'm talking about because we've talked about this before. Ukraine has had a history, just throughout this war, of resorting to blatant acts of terrorism. And last week was no different, because Ukraine launched drone strikes on the Kremlin. Now, these, these were blown up before they could reach the Kremlin. No damage was done to the Kremlin. Putin, I don't believe Putin was there at the time, and Zelensky was not in Ukraine at the time, so he has his plausible deniability. Uh, not that you can't just plan these things and then just oh, conveniently find an excuse to not be in the country when they happen so that they, the Russians can't fire on you in retaliation until you get back. It's not like the Russians can't hit him. It's just that he has currently diplomatic immunity. Although the Russians, if they, if they really wanted to, they could have wiped him out and liquidated him in an instant if they really wanted to. Like, again, they could have gone in Desert Storm style. They could have done the decapitation strike. They have hypersonic missiles. You literally can't stop those. There's currently no way of defending yourself from a hypersonic missile. You're telling me they, they couldn't wipe out Kiev? Well, maybe not Kiev as a whole. They could certainly put a hole in Kiev. But they could wipe out the government building and everyone in it in an instant. And no one would be the wiser until after it had happened. If Russia wanted to, they could have done the same, except they would have been successful because there's no way to defend against the hypersonic. And, and this is also part of the reason why I don't take the idea that Russia is going to use nuclear weapons seriously, because they have 
all the weapons at their disposal to do exactly the things that people are accusing that they're going to do. Uh, and this is namely uh, uh, an issue I have watching Tim Pool when he covers the Ukraine war and on Putin. It always goes straight to the nukes. It's always straight to the nukes, even though why would I use nukes if I can beat you conventionally? Uh, and, and this is ultimately, I believe, I believe stems one from Putin constantly bringing up the fact that the nuclear forces are on high alert. So that is partially Russia's uh, Russia's partly to blame for this that conception. But it's also it's also due to the lack of real information that we are getting. Like Temple reads more news than I do. Now, maybe he's more heavily influenced by what he reads than I am. I have a a sort of built-in filter to sort of navigate through the endless stream of propaganda. I'm sure I'm sure he has one as well. But the the lack of good news because like I cannot get a lot of reliable information from reading the news like i have to find good sources like i have the duran i have jimmy door i have the gray zone i've i've gotten more into the gray zone over the course of the war because I, I am starved for quality information i have scott ritter i have douglas mcgregor i have i have danny haifong of the left lens i have uh dang i i have jackson hinkle there we go primarily the left it's primarily primarily the left, like the far left, getting this right. Although the Duran isn't left, but I I have to go to these people. I have to go to Rogue News to get quality, real information about this war, and these are sources that are just not available for everyone. Uh, and by that I mean there aren't a lot of people looking for these sources of information. Like the Duran is great, but their reach isn't nearly as far as say a Stephen Crowder or even uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, if you heard the news, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon got fired, although no one, no one, <laughs> no one cared too much about Don Lemon, poor guy. Or the uh, the other guy from CNN. The other guy, Stelter, I think his name was. I think he was fired. Don't quote me. But I know, I know for certain Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson got fired. But the Duran, they are great, but they don't have the reach of so those high profile figures and their reach is infinitely farther <laughs> than any of my other sources that I've named with maybe the exception of Douglas McGregor, because Douglas McGregor has been on Tucker Carlson multiple times and he has been interviewed by Danny Iafong and Jackson Nichol before. So his reach might be up there, but even then you're talking uh, nowhere near the, the kind of reach to get across and through to the masses the real information about this war like most people are going off of what the news is saying and what the what the news articles that they're reading is the headlines and the headlines are just blatant propaganda now may, who knows maybe the war ends and i'm the one who who ends up having to eat my words and oh look i I thought the Russians were going to win, and they didn't, and that's, you know, that's one hell of an L that I'll, I'll have to take if that's how this goes down, but luckily for me, I don't think that that's going to go, that's not the way this is going to go down. But it is, I don't, it is this really bad information that we are constantly being fed that I believe leads to even 
some of the more reliable sources of news because Tim Pool is a very reliable source of news. A lot of the more independent YouTube type news figures are, I say YouTube type is a type, but the independent news that you will find on YouTube, on Rumble, because a lot of them move to Rumble and other platforms who are more honest with you about what their take is, you're going to be much better off getting news from them than the mainstream. But it's when the media is so captured by the propaganda and it's so heavy on the propaganda, even they, the independent news, can't help in a lot of cases but to be swept along by that propaganda or select bits of the propaganda. Like even channels dedicated to talking about the lies of certain propaganda outlets still can't help but fall for some of that propaganda because it's, it's like in the back of your mind, you're like, it can't all be lies, can it? Certainly this is true. This thing that I believe is true. All the other things are lies. And it's it'll be very interesting to see how the, the media, the, the propaganda press, so to speak, reconciles with being proven verifiably a fake news institution i'll say that much so that'll be something interesting to look out for the war but back to ukraine back to ukraine uh, I, I went off on a tangent because i uh based on not believing russia's gonna use nuclear weapons which they they're not they're not well primarily because they they one didn't even want to go in in a real war they came in negotiating for peace two they could have used it by now if they wanted to like why lose 100,000 men if you could just nuke them? And three, why drop nuclear weapons on land you plan to take? Why would you do that? What, so that the fallout can land on the people you've just annexed? That's a great idea. That's a great way to win the support of the people who you're really communicating with. And that's to the Russian speakers in Ukraine, the Ukrainians that don't want to be used as a proxy by the West against Russia. That's a good to China and India, the multipolar world. Russia's not going to use nukes. The stakes for Russia are such that using nukes isn't an option for them. But that's not something that's even talked about. Which is why it's not talked about on the propaganda press because they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about it. They're paid not to, which is why part of the reason why it's not talked about in the independent media as much unless you go to the more left-wing side of things who... Praise the decline of the empire, as I believe we all should. The death of the empire means the rebirth of the nation. But throughout this war, we've seen Ukraine resort to blatant acts of terrorism. Then just now, well, not just now, but just last week, they launched that drone strike on the Kremlin. It was taken down. There were two two drones, both got shot down. But that was not the first. That was just the latest. Because if you'll remember, there were a number of other attacks. There was the attack on Chernobyl when the war first began, when the Ukrainians started using their artillery on the derelict power plant in Chernobyl, the infamous nuclear power plant in Chernobyl. And the Russians had to come in and secure the area as quickly as possible. And it was a big, it was a pretty major news story in the middle of the war, what was going on with Chernobyl. Because the Ukrainians were firing on Chernobyl. 
Then there was those two other nuclear power plants over the course of the summer that the Ukrainians were shelling, the most infamous of which being the Zaporizhia, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And this one was just uh, a lovely story to go along with. It was it was so lovely because Zaporizhia, specifically the parts of Zaporizhia that had this power plant in it, were under Russian control at the time. The Ukrainians were shelling the power plant and then accusing the Russians of shelling the power plant and trying to cause a nuclear fallout. And people, gullible and pro-Ukraine as they were, believed it. Just like they believed that those missiles that fell on those Polish farmers were Russian missiles when they were actually Ukrainian missiles. But no one no one cared too much for that retraction. But they attacked this power plant in Zaporizhia. Everyone makes a big fuss about it. Oh, you, Russia's doing this. Russia's... And then the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy. What, what is the IAEA? IAEA. International Atomic Energy Agency Association. It's something along those lines. Uh, I'm going to actually look it up to fact check myself. But they come in, right? They come in and they have to be escorted and (laughs) protected by the Russians because the Ukrainians were still shelling the power plant as they were coming in to investigate. Okay, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Okay, I got it right. I got it right. And it was just uh, such a goofy story because on its face, it should have been dismissed. The idea that the Russians were shelling this power plant, even though they controlled the land that the power plant was on. They're going to shell the power. They're going to shell themselves, their own territory. Uh, Like, people believe Russians are evil to the point of being retarded. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're you're gonna you're gonna drop a nuke on the territory that you're trying to take, yeah? You're like, Putin's an evil dictator. He's gonna send hundreds of thousands of his men to die. And then what does he have left? This is Putin's war. He's he's an evil dictator who wants to re revive the Soviet Union. He. And he's gonna, <laughs> and he's gonna blow up the pipeline that he built between him and Germany to stick it to everyone else instead of just turning off the gas. <laughs> like, and that's how you know the propaganda runs deep when people are willing to believe something that is blatantly uh, incoherent. If Russia controls the land that the power plant is on. Why would they shell the power plant? Why would they why would they use their artillery on it? Why would they not use their air force so they could do that from a distance and not be affected by it? Why why would they not go in and dismantle it manually if it was something that they wanted to destroy? Like seriously. But the Ukrainians attacked Chernobyl, they attacked the Zaporizhia power plant and the and another one, I think it was to the north of the country. And the the IAEA scandal go on, and we all find out definitively that, yeah, yeah, it was the Ukrainians attacking the power plant, which should have been self-evident, but for whatever reason, it took that happening, and it's just a really comical story. But then you have the Kerch Strait Bridge attack, where the, the Ukrainians had a truck bomb go off, a really, really big 
truck bomb. Like, they were driving on the bridge, and then boom. And it takes out um, one of the road, because there's two lanes going in either direction. Uh, two lanes going towards Russia, two lanes coming towards Crimea. The truck bomb goes off. One of the lanes on one of the sides is shut down completely. There's one lane left open for the cars to travel. It, there's a little bit of damage to the railroad because there's also a, a rail line going to and from Crimea to Russia. Really big attack. Really big terrorist attack. And that was it was that attack that had the Russians mobilize for war. Well, that was used as the excuse to mobilize back in October. And that mobilization also that was also used as the reason to begin the strategic missile bombing campaign. But it wasn't it doesn't end there because there was also those two Ukrainian drones which were converted. They were really old drones, but they were eventually essentially converted into suicide drones. So they, the kamikaze drones, they fly in and destroy basically a guided missile, basically. Basically, basically, basically. They fly them into Russia. And they evade Russian air defenses, which implies heavy involvement from U.S. intelligence. Because there's no way the... It's really unlikely the Ukrainians would have been able to go that deep into Russia unnoticed with these drones russia a country that has the most extensive air defense system in the world it takes u.s intelligence to pull off something like that to navigate and get around radar detection from the russians and get all the way to angles air base and when you look at where angles air base is it's it's not right on the border all right. It's it's not it's not a, a few miles deep into Russia. No. It's it's deep in Russia. Like really, really deep. It's on the Volga River. It is farther back than the Germans made it when they invaded Russia. It's it's deep in Russia. You're it's almost it's about where Russia's border with Kazakhstan begins, right around there. That's where Engels Air Base is. So you're talking a really deep attack, which meant that this was deliberate. This wasn't just some, oh, we're going to just attack this place for the sake of attacking it. No, this is a specific and planned out target. And with the help of U.S. intelligence, they evaded you, your Russian air detection and attacked Engels Air Base. And what is significant about Engels Air Base, and the reason I emphasize the, the amount of planning and effort that went into attacking the base, to show that this was a deliberate and very, very deliberate act. They knew what they were doing. But they attacked Engels Air Base. And what is Engels Air Base? It is a base where the Russians house their nuclear weapons. One of the bases, anyway. It's not that they keep all the nukes there, but this is a, a known entity. This is a known quantity in the military realm. If you're in the military and you're a military high command and you're at war with Russia, this is something that you know about. This is where they keep nuclear weapons, right here, Angles Air Base. And they sent two drones, two kamikaze drones to this airbase. It's also an airport. It's sort of 
mixed between the, the two. But you're going to send two kamikaze drones to a place where you know the Russians are storing nuclear missiles? Well, nuclear warheads? This is why I would say, and I believe I am accurate in saying it. It's not like they just did it once. Now they did it twice. No, we have three instances, not counting that other uh, nuclear power plant that the Ukrainians attacked because I, the name of it is just absolutely blanking on me right now. But they attack Chernobyl, they attack Zaporizhia, the nuclear power plants, and they attack Angles Air Base, a base that was known to house Russian nuclear warheads. Ukraine is a nuclear terrorist state. And at a bare minimum, a terrorist state. Attacking the Kerch Strait Bridge. Attacking Chernobyl. Attacking Zaporizhia, the, the nuclear power plant. Sending missiles into a, a barracks. Where, granted, granted, that is technically fair game. They send a missile into a barracks where a bunch of Russian recruits were. That's technically fair game. They do little raids. They they, uh, they those helicopter raids into Gor into Belgorod. Earlier on in the war. Like this is a terrorist state. And there were also those Ukrainians, those U Ukrainians who got caught in Italy planning to do an attack on members of the U Italian government at the time. They were apprehended before they could do anything. But what were they doing over there? You don't just go to Italy and, I'm, oh, now I'm going to attack the... No. That takes money to do that, to get from Ukraine to Italy, and then you're going to plan out an attack on the... That takes money. That takes funding. Who was responsible for that? Now, there's probably some combination of the United States and Ukraine. But Ukraine is courtesy of these incidents, which are very deliberate. These aren't accidents. Ukraine is, I believe it is accurate to say Ukraine is a terrorist state. They're, so they're not just Nazis. They are terrorists. The Ukrainian government. So the fact that we are we're supposedly at war we're supposedly at war with terrorists everywhere, but we're backing up a terrorist state. We're supposedly anti-Nazi, but we're backing up Nazis in Ukraine. It, the whole world is flipped on its head. But I guess that's what happens when you are run by hypocrites who say one thing and do another. We're backing up a Nazi terrorist state, who I would go as far as to say is a nuclear terrorist state because they keep attacking places that are nuclear. With the intention of causing nuclear damage. Nuclear fallout, nuclear waste. That they attack these places with that in mind. and So they can hurt the Russians. Even if that comes at the expense of their own people. This is a nuclear terrorist state. So it, it goes without saying that I don't think we should be supporting these people at all. If this is what their actions are going to be. But that's just... The, that recent attack on the Kremlin sort of reminded me that, oh, right, because at first I'm like, whoa, that's a bit of a provocation there. You're going to attack the Kremlin. You know they can attack you back. There's no way the Ukrainians don't know that they can attack them back. But it's like, okay, you're going to do that. And now you have officials in Russia calling for a decapitation strike against Ukraine. 
Sure, the Western media might run defense for you. They're bought and sold. And then bought and paid for again. But the rest of the world knows what you are. And that's why the rest of the world doesn't care about supporting Ukraine. Because the rest of the world isn't nearly as propagandized on the issue as Europe and the United States is. But it's it's a dangerous thing what the Ukrainians do. And they just don't know what when where the line is. Like, sure, you're at war. Being at war is one thing, right? And trying to win that war is an important thing. But how does decapitating the Kremlin, how does a decapitation strike on the Kremlin that would have maybe hit the head of state of Russia, how does that win you the war when he has been the most restrained of the bunch? How does getting rid of the person who has been exercising restraint help you? It doesn't help you at all. Because now you have all these officials in Russia saying, we need decapitation strikes on Ukraine. We need, we need missiles in Kiev tomorrow. And Putin is the man now standing between them and you. Even while he's at war with you. It's an insane, it's dangerous, and it's even more insane. And then we give them money. And that's... It's, I, I almost don't have words, but I think that's just more because my, my vocabulary is failing me as I thought it might, but it's, it's a, it's a situation. I'll say that there, as I try to grab my words together and round out the episode, it's a, a very dangerous situation that the Ukrainians, with our support and our backing, continue to make more dangerous. What would have happened had they actually hit Putin? What would have happened? Ukraine dies. That's what happens. That, that's the short answer. Ukraine dies. There's no more restraint. Those hundreds of thousands of men that the Russians have been amassing will suddenly spawn... <laughs> on Ukraine's border and attack them from every angle. There's no more restraint. The Russian Air Force will show up in force and you will realize, as well as I have, that the Russians have been holding back. Those thermobaric missiles that the Russians have been using, expect those on every inch of the front line. All those hypersonic missiles that the Russians have been holding back, expect them to hold back no more. They won't even give you the chance for your counteroffensive. They'll begin their offensive and then just roll over you like a steamroller. That's what they run. They ran the risk of doing that. And I think that's still what's going to happen to them. But at a slower rate, because Putin is still there. They are safer with Putin than they are with anybody else. But they keep ratcheting up the war and upping the stakes, and upping the danger. If this is the new president where you can just attack and decapitate whoever you want, well, at any given moment in time, the Russians can return the favor. And we have no idea when that's going to be, 
Not that we have any way of defending against that, because if they're going to do it, they're going to use a hypersonic. And then you you can't do anything about it. You just have to sit there and take it. And that's the end of that story. But dangerous is it might not begin to cover what the the Ukrainians uh, are at this point in the war, but it is certainly a good start. Certainly a good start. I don't even want to get into what would have happened had any of these nuclear terrorist acts gone as badly as the Ukrainians, in my belief, intended for them to go. I won't even go there. But that, my lovely listeners, is all that I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing Ukraine is a (laughs) nuclear terrorist state, but hopefully with the world changing, that changes as well. And we will enjoy watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.